All right, uh, welcome to this week's podcast. This week we, we did something a little different. Um, we're going to focus on uh, the uh, similarities between the Hebrew and Babylonian mythologies um, in Genesis. Uh, similarity is, uh, is putting a small point on it. We're talking, uh, in some places, outright copyright. Copyright? They had copyrights or- back then? Don't make me beat you. I'm, I'm half asleep. <laughs> You're the one that got me up so early. <laughs> All right, plagiarism. Let's try that. That's there a better word. There you go. <laughs> uh, so what What I have, I've done research on the um, Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish. And uh, Leighton, you've got what? Uh, I've got the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is actually the Noah story, uh, as per the uh, Judeo-Christianity Bible. So, uh, which one of us would like to go first? I'll probably go first, since it's the creation story. Um, I guess that's true. We have to be created before we can flood the world and kill everybody. Exactly. Um, So, a little bit of historical background. Uh, In about uh, 590 or so, um, the uh, kingdom of Judah uh, was uh, overrun by Babylon, which was the emerging uh, empire and power of the day. Uh, a great number of their intellectuals, um, the leaders of the community, were taken. This is what Babylon did. It, co- it captured people's cities, and they took the best and the brightest and brought them back to Babylon, uh, attacked as slaves, and, and helped them with their empire. Which makes perfect sense if you're a, a budding society who wants to stay on top. It's, it's a pretty good idea. Um, they weren't destined to last. Uh, about 50 years after... Um, the Jews were put in the, the Babylonian captivity or exile. Uh, there were, the Babylon itself was actually conquered by the Persians, I think, Cyrus the Great. Uh, and that yeah. story is also in the Bible, too. But um, during this time, the, the dominant society had the dominant creation myth, um, which actually wasn't discovered until 1875. Um, it was probably written down in the 12th century BCE, uh, but no one knew about it until about 1875 when it was discovered in, in tablet form. And it, it bears remarkable similarity with the Jewish creation story. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? You, you're captured, you, you're brought in, you have a creation story, and you want to um, uh, kind of make up your own, right? Yeah, to yeah, respond. make a picture of yeah. yeah. So uh, let's go over briefly the Jewish creation story which is that um, a single god, uh, Yahweh, or Elohim, uh, starts in this um, desolate waste, right, that's covered in darkness. He creates yeah. light. There, yeah. Uh, he um, creates a firmament, a firmament, right, where he separates the waters above from the waters below. The firmament's kind of this rigid dome that's over the earth, and it separates uh, earth from heaven. I've always wondered why he didn't make light first, because isn't it always easier to work on something if you can see it? <laughs> that was the first development. He oh, light. Well, you know. However, what what confuses me is that um, he created light first, but then the sun, the moon, and the stars were like on, uh, on day four or five. <laughs> well, see, that's what I'm talking yeah. about there. That's the creation where you're sitting there and he's like, well, he created light. Is he carrying around a torch? Right. So we got the initial state, which is, you know, chaos or desolate waste covered in darkness. He creates light. He creates a firmament. He creates dry land. Uh, the sun, moon, and the stars are created. He creates man on, on day six. And then the final thing he does is, is rests, right? Yeah. 
Um, here's, here's the Babylonian creation story. Uh, you have two gods, a god of fresh water and a god of seawater. Uh, Apsu, I think, is the god of fresh water, and Tiamat's the god of uh, seawater. So she's kind of like the god of the goddess of the deep. Um, she has seven little gods inside her belly, and they're making a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a kitten. She's this, got kittens. And this pisses off Apsu. <laughs> he wants him to shut up. So he wants to try to kill him, but she doesn't like that. So she has him killed. And then she has second thoughts about it, and she goes on this really raging, you know, against creation. And finally this god emerges, Marduk, who um, uh, uses the power of wind to blow her up like a big balloon. And finally <laughs> she pops. And he cuts her in half, and the top of her is the firmament. He makes a firmament. And the bottom of her uh, is like where the earth is. Um, and after that, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, he creates human beings, men and women, um, to become his slaves. And in Babylon, um, just like the subjects of the king were, were um, slaves, in essence, to the king, um, God created everyone but the king, basically, to be his slaves. And on the um, seventh tablet, <laughs> the gods rest and celebrate their victory over Tiamat. Uh, well, why would the Babylonian god be as lazy as the Christian god? It, 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 it just doesn't bode well for a good society. These aren't um, all-powerful all beings. <laughs> they had to really uh, work, you know. There are a lot of other similarities. I mean, the, the, the developments are exactly the same, right? Yeah. Um, it starts in chaos uh, for Babylon. It's uh, enveloped in darkness. Um, light's created next, then the firmament, um, which is the, if you look at the Bible's idea of the cosmos and the Babylonian idea, uh, the Babylonian idea is exactly the same. You got the firmament, you got the earth, it's kind of in this massive water. Uh, fresh water comes in and eventually goes into the salt water. Um, uh, the firmament separates the earth from the heavens, it's this, this dome that bends over. Uh, the dry land's created, the sun, moon, and stars are created, men and women are created, and then uh, the gods rest. It's exactly the same. Hmm. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. That just tells me that the Babylonians captured the, uh, the Jews and then stole their history from them. Sure. Most scholars, uh, believe, <laughs> most scholars believe that the um, Babylonian mythology has been an oral tradition at least since 2000. And I believe there are some tablets that are based, uh, that are dated to 2000 BCE. I can beat you there. I mean, your tablet of creation was built in the uh, 12th century BCE. The Epic of Gilgamesh dates back to uh, 2750 to 2500 BCE. Wow. Right. These things have been around forever. Way before the Hebrews made their mythology. Um, the, the tablets that were found, I think, were in the 6th century. Uh, they, I think they were under Nebuchadnezzar, I think, the, or some prince. I can't remember. I think it was the 6th century. But they were written as early. They have tablets as old as, I think, the 12th century, or um, some believe that uh, the you know 2,000 years BCE is the first one they have. Anyway, they're remarkably old, and certainly older than the, the Hebrews. It predates Hebrews. It, it's interesting that... Um, <laughs> You know, when God says, we're going to create man, right? He says, let us create man in our image. 
Who's he yeah, see, that's to? always been very interesting, too, because it sounds like he's talking to other gods. He's clearly, like, speaking to a royal court, right? I mean, it's the same, or other gods, or, or you know, Christians, I think, he's talking to angels, but, you know, angels haven't. Nothing about the creation of angels. It's clearly kind of a, a vestigial polytheism in there. It's, it's left in there. And interesting enough, the Enuma Elish actually um, means, it's, it's the first two words in the creation story of Babylon, and it, it means when on high. And if you look back to the original Hebrew in Genesis, it's actually not in the beginning, it's when in the beginning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and whereas um, the Enuma Elish talks about place, right, when on high, uh, it ends yeah. with the foundation of Babylon, it's very specific about the place. The Bible actually talks about the time, right? Um, because Hebrews have been taken away from their temple. It's been destroyed. They've moved from their homeland to Babylon. Place no longer can be important to them. It's all about time. In the beginning. It, you know, the similarities are interesting. The, the differences are also interesting. Well, what are the differences? Hit me. Well, monotheism versus polytheism. Uh, I, I still think that Christianity is a polytheistic nature. <laughs> We're not talking but. about Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jewish tradition then. <laughs> you know, clearly they are gods fighting other gods, um, whereas this one god is just kind of making it uh, so by his word. A lot, there are actually lots and lots of differences, but the, the similarities are such that you really can't get around. Uh, one was definitely taken from the other. And I think, in in my mind anyway, I think it's a response to the Babylonian creation myth. I think that they're saying, you've got your creation myth. And in the ancient times, they were more kind of like compilers than they were creative. They would take a thing that was already there and they would uh, twist it around sure. to suit their own purposes. And I think you're going to get into that with Gilgamesh because there's a lot of similarities and there are some key differences in there as well. Yeah, yeah, Gilgamesh has, it, it's fascinating, the amount of uh, similarities in between it, which is why it's so funny that uh, people either deny that uh, the story of Noah was stolen from Gilgamesh, or they say that uh, the Mesopotamian people actually stole the Epic of Gilgamesh from uh, the Jews. Right, so. which is ridiculous. It'd be like, you know, um, the United States taking their religion from... Uh, Uzbekistan or something, you know? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, anyway. Well, if, uh, if Uzbekistan had the proper religion, then I see that fully going forward. If it were true, you're right. Yeah. In the Bible, you know, God hovers over the face of the deep, um, which in Hebrew is Tehom, which ah. is a cognate of Tiamat. Uh, it sounds like it was derived directly from Tiamat, and Tiamat is the, the goddess of the deep. Um, and interesting, again, um, Marduk battles against uh, Tiamat, and he enlists the, the seven gods of the wind, right? And he blows her up. In Genesis, the spirit of God, um, Ruach in Hebrew, also means wind. Now, this is common in, in ancient languages. Um, in Greek, the term is pneuma, uh, which means spirit or wind. Um, that's where we get the term pneumonia from. Uh, and I think what happens is that they, they knew, they are very aware that you had to breathe to live. And so they think that that, that air is your spirit. Um, so they have the same term for wind as they have with spirit. So it's actually uh, the wind that is hovering over the face of the deep. Very, very similar to the Enuma Elish. 
Oh, one other difference. In the Bible, God creates man in his image, right? Not to be slaves, but he gives the man dominion over the world. So they're not slaves. They're actually masters. Um, yeah. Which would make sense if you're currently a slave. <laughs> <laughs> it would definitely be something you were thinking about quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it's, um, I think, incontrovertible that, uh, that one is dependent on the other. Or maybe both are dependent on an older source. But we have no older source. It, you know, what this does is it destroys the literal interpretations of the Bible. Well, of course it does, because, I mean, you, you have blatant theft of many cultures going into the Bible. Right. So if the Bible were literally true, then you actually have to believe in uh, the older one <laughs> from which they derived it. You have, yeah, to, you... you have to believe in the Enuma Elish. You also have to believe in the Egyptians because, you know, it, some of their traditions were stolen and placed in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating how people can take this literally. Uh, other, there are other vestiges of this um, battle against a sea monster that are still there in the Bible, interestingly enough. Um, in Psalm 89, uh, I'll just read you chapter, chapter 89, starting from verse 9. Uh, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God feared in the council of the holy ones? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Rahab is a, a sea monster, right? It's crushed like a carcass, just like uh, Marduk um, slayed Tiamat. In Isaiah yeah. uh, uh, 26, 19 and, and 27, 1, this is 27, 1. On the day the Lord, with his cruel and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. Psalm 74, starting with verse 12. For God is my king of old, uh, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So you can see where there are vestiges of this uh, story of the great battle against the sea dragon right there in the Bible. How is it people cannot look at this and see the similarity? That is just what I don't understand. That You know, you got the little blinders on where they say, uh, like you said, well, clearly um, this massively giant um, world power derived their creation story from this <laughs> tiny rural tribe. That yeah, the they already people. defeated. It makes sense to me. I mean, obviously, the conquered people had the truth of the uh, the Lord on their side, and therefore, it was the Mesopotamians who stole it. Yeah, right. Uh, I have I have no idea of any culture in history that. Uh, well, I take that back. Um, there is one example, and that's the Romans. They conquered Greece and uh, became thoroughly Hellenized. Okay, now wait, wait, wait. We we can't compare Greece with with Jews here. I mean, are you anti-Semitic? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with Jews? Well, well, I mean, I'm nothing wrong with the Jews. <laughs> All I'm pointing out is the Greeks were considered the greatest fighting force back then. They were the ones that held off the Persians. So I mean, we've got a small state, yes, very small, but a very well-respected state. Not That's... only not only were they uh, great fierce warriors, they're, they're almost a, a paradox in that they were great poets and they were great exactly. philosophers and they were great, great writers thinkers. and great playwrights and great, great thinkers. This was a, a massively sophisticated culture. 
uh, and and I, if if I'm going to compare the two, Greece has to win out. Um, you know, the, I consider Genesis great literature. There's no real philosophy. All the philosophy is kind of hidden in there. It, you, you know, in, in parts of um, Ecclesiastes, I suppose there's there's some good philosophy, um, but it's few and far between, and and there's not a whole lot of uh, really new or original thought. It doesn't advance things. It, you're kind of stagnated within these sort of uh, boundaries that you can't get away from, right? Oh, so now you're anti-Semitic. Here, I was just getting the ball rolling. Clearly. Um, if it's anti-Semitic to think that ancient Greece was a greater culture than ancient Hebrews, then yeah, I'm anti-Semitic. I think ancient Greece is the pinnacle of the ancient civilization. No one came close. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, there... In all honesty, beyond Egypt, there's nothing to compare to Greece. Yeah, there's um, uh, no other uh, culture, civilization I can think of where the conquered people uh, had such a great effect on the conquerors. I mean, when we defeated Japan uh, in 1945, in World War II, Japan um, became fairly Americanized. They changed a lot of their culture... And there was this fascination with the people who could conquer them because they thought that they were invincible. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, more typical. Um, you, you get conquered and you think, what can I do to reassert my individuality and my independence and my conquering spirit? And you end up emulating the people that uh, conquered you in the hopes that you will kind of return the favor later on. Well, of course, that makes perfect sense because if there's a weakness in you that somebody has exploited, it's just nature, human nature, especially in man and the pride we have, to fight back. And therefore, we have to learn the ways of the person who defeated us. That just makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very rare for the reverse to happen. Uh, it did, uh, certainly um, with the Romans and the Greeks. They became thoroughly Hellenized, but... Who can blame them? <laughs> that's that's all I'm pointing out here. I love Greece. That much is pretty much evident. But who can blame them? Because I mean, where else do you get a society that is so respected and feared that even the Persians were pushed back by them? Right. And everybody to the modern day is still studying their works. Right. They're absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I agree. Egypt comes close. They're a, a very intriguing society. Because they're the only great kingdom, I think, that never became an empire. <laughs> they didn't want to spread out and get away from the yeah. homeland. Right. No one wanted to leave Egypt. It was paradise. It was perfect. And who wanted to die in a foreign land where you might not be resurrected? Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's, that's in a nutshell the story of uh, Enuma Elish. And, uh, it, it is, to my mind, clearly irrefutable that that both came first... Uh, and ha had a, um, a strong impact on um, the Hebrews that were taken in. And you can see why, uh, actually it explains why there's a Genesis 1 and a Genesis 2. Genesis 2 was probably written before Genesis 1 with the Adam and the Eve story. Um, yeah. And uh, when they got captured in Babylon, uh, they probably wanted to have a creation story that was a response to the creation story of the Babylonians so they wouldn't lose their children to this um, actually very captivating battle, you know, creation slash battle story of the Babylonians. Yeah, I mean, very much more interesting than the uh, the Genesis story, I, in my opinion. <laughs> the fact, 
the fact that there's this massive sea dragon goddess with seven noisy baby gods inside of her that's <laughs> pissing off her husband. That's such a great story. <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I do love the stories that come out of this region. They they very thoroughly entertain me. They are fascinating. So what do you got? Uh, take me through the Epic of Gilgamesh. All right, well, before we begin with the Epic of Gilgamesh, I thought I'd give a little bit of a backstory. Now, uh, how I learned about the Epic of Gilgamesh is Charlie and I, we are great fans of history, and because of this, we listen to these uh, these lecture series that go over history, go over, uh, I mean, religious uh, interests, things like that. Basically, and, we're gigantic nerds. Yeah, pocket protector everything. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't lift a, a 10 pounds if my life depended on it. I, <laughs> I uh, read Scientific American. Uh, I watch Battlestar Galactica. It's... Uh, the horse is out of the barn for me. I don't know about you, but I, I am a gigantic nerd. Well, it's pretty bad for me, too, because here I am listening to the same lecture series that you do, and I actually enjoy reading about computer programming and reading the programming languages itself. There you so, go. You got your geek card. Yeah, I, I've got my nerd card. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so basically I, I heard about the Epic of Gilgamesh from one of these uh, lecturers, these professors, I did a little bit of research into it, and uh, this was still when I was somewhat religious, where I had basically tossed off the LDS religion, but I was still considering myself a believer in a god or immortal being up above us, taking care of us. Hard to give up, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's something that's ingrained inside of you. and That's a very comforting thought. I remember my grandmother, um, whenever we had problems, she had this standard line, that said, well, don't worry, it's all part of God's plan, right? Yeah. Uh, and that kind of thinking, you know, no matter how bad it gets, there's someone watching out for you, and he's got a plan for you, and he's going to take care of you. That's very, uh, very compelling, very comforting. Well, it's very difficult when you come from a childhood where you always think and were taught to believe that there's somebody there who's got your back at all times, and then to go to the idea that I am on my own, I will have to deal with things on my own, and everything I do is because of what I do. It's it's a very interesting twist of the mind, and it takes a little bit. It, it definitely does. It definitely does. And you were ingrained in that much more thoroughly than I was. Yeah, in fact, I think it was pretty well beaten into my skin. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I discovered this Epic of Gilgamesh, and I, I remember this very, very specifically just because of the reaction my mother took on it. But uh, my mother, who at the time was still really upset about me leaving the LDS religion, and uh, she was sitting that down there and asking me if I believed in God. Do and you, this was the. Do you still oh, have your records in the church? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm still a Mormon. Oh, that's right. You're uh, waiting to be excommunicated. Some people say that they they get so irritated they want their records removed, but I hear that's a really difficult process. I've never really talked to anybody about that, but it doesn't matter to me if they want to consider me part of them, sure, but I'm sure once they hear this podcast we've got going, uh, yeah, I'll be excommunicated shortly. It won't be long. All right, so your mom's still upset about you leaving the church. Yeah, so I mean, I was down, I was helping her work in her basement, and she asked me if I believed in God, and for the first time I turned around and I looked at her and said, I don't know. And she starts just saying, well, why don't you? you? You felt this as a child, and I basically told her, you know what, 
I can't trust what I felt as a child because all of that was ingrained in me from childhood and I was taught not to use my mind but to use my heart and to feel things which isn't exactly a good scientific way of developing theories but uh, so we're sitting there and we're talking back and forth and so she asked me specifically what it was that was shaking my faith and so since the Epic of Gilgamesh was so close in my mind I cited that and I explained to her what that the Epic of Gilgamesh was basically the Noah story except the Jews stole it from the Mesopotamian people. Uh, she burst into tears, which is why I remember this so so clearly. Burst into tears and then says to me, God did the flood and that's why we have rainbows now because that rainbows are God's promise that he will never flood the world again. At that point, I just shut up. There really with with that sort of thinking there's really no use in continuing with the conversation it is very well especially since she's in tears right it's very difficult to respond to that um, without further um, without causing further problems I guess you know that yeah. it, it always astounds me and I'm kind of shocked because I just assume people don't believe you know like intelligent people don't believe in this stuff I mean, really, you really think that um, light, uh, the differential bending of light when it hits a prism, which causes the rainbow effect, it splits it into different um, uh, spectrums. Um, it changes the wavelength as it bends um, and takes the white light and separates it just like a prism. Yeah. That that didn't happen before God made the the rainbow? I mean, that he actually fundamentally changed the uh, properties of light and or prisms? Well, obviously. I mean, the Bible says so, therefore it is so. I would, but I, mean, really, I would really, before the flood, I'd like to travel back in time before the flood and uh, run a sprinkler. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> God didn't allow sprinklers. <laughs> what happened so there were no leprechauns or pots of gold at the end of the rainbow, clearly? Well, those didn't come until God created the rainbow. I mean, keep up. Come yeah. on, man. It's hard. Uh, so I mean, so you left anyway, your in tears. You didn't even apologize, you bastard. No, I didn't apologize. How am I supposed to apologize for intelligent thought? So I just kind of told her to stop fretting over me, and that I'll I'll do all right in whatever path I choose. You look her that didn't help eye. too much. You look her in the eye and you say, "I am so sorry for using my brain." <laughs> oh, I'm sure that would go over real well. And then you say. One day, I hope you will be sorry as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would go over real well. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure not only would there be tears, but she would be swinging a broom at me. <laughs> oh, it might be worth it. You so, troublemaker. You're so trying you, to break up my family here. You made your mom cry just to say that you didn't believe in God. That's horrible. Well, see, at that point, I wasn't even saying that I didn't believe in God. All I said is I didn't believe in Noah. Oh, yeah. They can't separate that, though. That's very true. All true or none of it's true. (sighs) So, (laughs) So that is basically my beginnings with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is why I was really looking forward to doing this. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Have you ever heard of an Asian, an Australian, South American, any type of native people outside of that region who has a flood story. No. See, that's I actually tried to search for that, 
and I couldn't find a single flood story outside of that region. However, I did find a flood story in Hindu traditions. The, the, right, uh, flood stories abound in Egypt, too. Yeah. But they're next to a big river that floods every year. <laughs> I don't know of any well, flood stories that occur in, other than the Hebrews, that occur in places where there is just dry land and no floods. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just very fascinating. We have, I mean, I, I love the, the Hindu tradition. It's, uh, it's Manu, the king, and this is how it goes. The little fish asked the king to save it. Upon his doing so, kept growing bigger and bigger. It also informed the king of a huge flood which would occur soon. The king builds a huge boat which houses his family, nine types of seeds, and animals to repopulate the earth And after the deluge occurs and the ocean and seas recede. So, I mean, we have a fish that keeps growing in the Hindu tradition which tells them of the flood story. I love that. But, I mean, even the Greeks had a flood story. Now, uh, this is actually in the Greek mythology... I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, but it's Dusaleon, or whatever it is, <laughs> who was the son of Prometheus and Pronoia. And uh, hold on a sec. So Zeus sets upon loosing a deluge where the rivers would run in torrents and the sea encroach rapidly on the coastal plain, engulf the foothills with spray, and wash everything clean. Dusaleon was then saved from this deluge by the aid of his father Prometheus like his biblical analog, Noah, and the Mesopotamian counterpart, oop, oop, I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with Gilgamesh. Upnapishtim, I think, is what it is. Yeah, Upnapishtim, yeah. <laughs> I can see this is going to be very difficult for you, Leighton. <laughs> Why, thank you. Well, as soon as we get to the name of, uh, I think he's a god, and his name is just E-A, please describe to me how you pronounce E-A. Aya. Aya? No, no I, I think that's A. <laughs> you have to begin with the E. Come on, dude, think. <laughs> well, E isn't pronounced like English in every culture, you know. Wow, that's very true. I did live in Hawaii for a long time. So, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, so what the Epic of Gilgamesh is, is it is one of the oldest written stories on Earth. In fact, it, it comes from cuneiform tablets. And they have... Uh, some older ones that have, uh, you can say the word better than I can, the laconia, the, uh, the holes in them. Lacuna. And they have, lacuna, there it is. Yeah. So they have uh, those from these oldest tablets. And what they do is, to fill in the rest of the story, they take a look at the newer tablets they have, and where the older tablet is missing due to the lacuna, they fill in with the newer tablet. And it actually works pretty well. Now, they're actually... 12 clay tablets, all written in cuneiform script. And it's about the historical king of Uruk. Now this was, like I said earlier, between the times of 2750 and 2500 BCE. So we're talking a long, long time ago. Now, curiously enough... We're talking about 5500 years ago. Yeah. We're talking middle of... Well, I suppose probably 5th Dynasty or so in Egypt. It's still pretty new. We're talking about Pyramid Age. Yeah, we're talking they're building the pyramids at this time. Damn. So, I mean, this was a long time ago. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's very fascinating because there are some scholars who believe that Gilgamesh was actually a real king. Which, I mean, it, it holds credence. A lot of the ancient people, they would take their kings and they would build them up into stories such as these. But the reason why 
they uh, they believe that Gilgamesh may have been a real person is because they've discovered artifacts from around 2600 BC associated with uh, I'm really going to screw this name up Enmebaragasi of Kish. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I, I told you I'm going to botch all these names up. So all of you out there listening, go look it up for yourself and let's see how you do the translation. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, this was just one of Gilgamesh's adversaries, and they've actually found artifacts associated with, we'll call him, of Kish. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Kishtum. Kishtum. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, how much of the story have you actually read, Charlie? Uh, I have read bits and pieces. <clears throat> um, I know the general overarching story and the similarities, um, because the, the Noah story isn't actually about Gilgamesh. It's it's about this Utnapishtim guy who has found um, immoral Im- immorality. That would be a much better story. Yeah, yeah. He's found immortality in Gilgamesh because his his um, friend died. Uh, wants to come to him to find out the secret of immortality. Is that is that basically it? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's almost it to a T. I mean, in Kidu, uh, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong too. <laughs> I, I love the story of him. Basically, you have Gilgamesh here who is like half god. And he's too great for his own britches. So the uh, and it's funny because the people were actually complaining about Gilgamesh's rule because he was just too severe on them. And so the gods create Enkidu, this completely wild, feral man. And Gilgamesh sends out a prostitute to Enkidu to calm him down. And within like six or seven days, because of this prostitute, Enkidu all of a sudden becomes, although still a wild and adventurous man. He becomes a normal, civilized man. See, women are poison. That's the moral of that story. Yeah, they're just there to destroy what we ourselves have created in ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> they suck all the life out of us. Exactly. That, that's how they make us civilized, is they suck the life out of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, so, anyway. so, far, so far, we've got our anti-Semitism and our... Um, Anti-feminism, sexism. sexism. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, if you're keeping we seem score to find home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we seem to find little issues with uh, with our belief systems as we do these, don't we? <laughs> all right, continue. All right, all right. So basically, Enkidu and Gilgamesh they become great friends, and if, if you want to read this story, it's actually it's it's very poetic, very nice, and 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 fascinating story. So basically, they become friends, and Gilgamesh, he decides that they want to go and they want to kill this other god. He's like a demon god out there. He's causing them trouble. And so, although Enkidu is kind of against it, uh, the god, the demon god's name is Humbaba. I love that name. That's a great <laughs> name. <laughs> but, I mean... Uh, you have Enkidu, who's kind of against it, he's kind of afraid, but Gilgamesh, you know, being his proud self, keeps saying, you know what, this will be fine, this will be fine, let's keep going. And it's very fascinating, because there's one particular spot where Gilgamesh has five bad dreams. And uh, each of those bad dreams, he reconstructs to Enkidu, and each time Enkidu tells him, oh no, these are a good omen, and he explains why these are a good omen. And I'm sorry, maybe it's just me connecting history, but that just very much seemed to me 
like what the Bible was trying to do with Joseph and uh, the ruler of Egypt at the time. The ruler of Egypt had these bad dreams. Joseph comes in and says, you know what, they are bad dreams, but they are good omens. Right, they're, um, they're a message from God, right? And here's the interpretation. So in, in Kidu, does he interpret it? Uh, I don't know if he interprets it. I haven't found an interpretation, and the reason why is it's they're having trouble constructing the dreams, and uh, uh, and so it's very difficult to uh, tell if he interprets it. But he does point out to uh, Gilgamesh, you know what? These are these are good omens. Well, anyway, it, it's very interesting because they go and they defeat Humbaba, and they do it with the gods' help. Uh, I believe it was Ishtar. Who, uh, who was the, the god that helped them. I, I can't remember entirely. All right, well, anyway, so it's actually interesting because through the battle of Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and Humbaba, that's where the mountains in Syria are built up because of their battling. So, I mean, it, it's great that not only do they have this, this warrior king out there fighting, but this warrior king had such an effect on the land that he pushed up the mountains in his battle with Humbaba. So, the, so these guys are doing the same thing that, that um, the Hebrews are in that they're d- using these uh, myths to explain kind of natural phenomena. Exactly. I'm sure that that's very exactly. common. So anyway, because of, uh, because of this, Gilgamesh is actually – now this is why I like the Gilgamesh story better than the Bible story. You have Anu who is the sky god's daughter who comes to Gilgamesh and wants to have sex with him. And Gilgamesh rejects her. <laughs> All right, so she throws himself at his feet. He says, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. Um, does he ever have sex in this entire epic? Not that I've run across, but I mean... in Kidu? Well, well probably. That, that was common. Oh, wait, no, this is not Greece. Um, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well, actually, to, to tell you the, the reason why he didn't have sex with her... It's because she mistreated one of her previous lovers, uh, Dumuzi. Well, I just would it, think that a hero of an ancient Mesopotamian epic would uh, jump at uh, the chance of having sex with anyone, right? These are real manly men. Well, I guess he's not... He's not uh, Enkidu probably would have had it. Oh, yeah. He's a wild man. He would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so, so basically what happens is, is because of a consequence of this, Anu... Uh, or Ishtar, actually, uh, who uh, demands of her father to avenge Anu because of her rejected sexual advances. And because of this, they send down the bull of heaven, which, uh, from what I understand, he's, he's this great plague of the lands. Well, Gilgamesh and Enkidu defeat the bull of heaven. And uh, I love this part. I have to read this. When they hear Ishtar cry out in agony, Enkidu tears off the bull's hindquarter and throws it in her face and threatens her. Now, these are real men. We're talking a goddess here. <laughs> and he slaps her in the face with the bull of heaven that they just killed. <laughs> now, he's a misogynist. He shouldn't be doing that to a woman. That's uncivilized. Obviously. Well... Because of this, Enkidu has a bad dream, and eventually... (laughs) That's the only uh, consequence of smacking a goddess in the face? He died! What what more consequence do you need? (laughs) What happened to Gilgamesh? He just had a bad dream? Well, no, no, no. Enkidu had the bad dream, and then he died. Oh, okay. He He had a bad dream, and then he died. 
Yes, thank you. Did he but fall he... in the dream? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've heard that can kill you if you don't wake up before it. No! He had the bad dream. He went to Gilgamesh. He explained it to Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh got very upset because he didn't want to lose his friend. In the end, he had to surrender Enkidu to death. And uh, from there, that's where he sets out on this uh, this search for immortality. And it's, it's very fascinating. It's actually... Uh, 12 tablets of just these two, and they're running around causing trouble. It's it's very fascinating. But, alright, now let, let's get into the Flood story so we don't take too much more time, because it's actually Gilgamesh <laughs> and speaking with alright, you're going to make fun of me again, Utanapishtim. <laughs> Stop laughing. <laughs> I'm not even going to correct you anymore. I think your translations are so uh, entertaining. Oh, really? My All right, well, tell me, how do you say this? S-H-U-R-U-P-P-A-K. Um, Shurpakaka. Wow, you just you just sounded like Ace Ventura there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, basically, what, what Gilgamesh does is he starts uh, discussing and finding out that the gods are planning a flood. Now, uh... This is very interesting. I'm going to read you directly from the 11th tablet of Gilgamesh, which is actually where this is found. And it says, Tear down the house and build a boat, abandon wealth, and seek living beings. Spurn possessions and keep alive living, thi- living beings. And then a little bit farther down, Gilgamesh responds by saying, I understand and spoke to my lord, and here's the name, E-A, we'll just say Ea, Ea, yeah, whatever. My lord, thus is the command which you, you not, have... How can you not pronounce a, a word that has two letters in it? If one of them was a consonant, it would be easier. <laughs> All right, what did, <laughs> what did the god pronounce? Uh, well, actually, this was uh, Gilgamesh speaking to Ea. My lord, thus is the command which you have uttered. I will heed and will do it, but what shall I answer the city, the populace, and the elders? Now, curiously enough, this is where it kind of goes away from Noah. It says, You, well then, this is what you must say to them. It appears that Enlil is rejecting me, so I cannot reside in your city, nor set foot on Enlil's earth. I will go down to the Apsu to live with my lord Ea, and upon you he will rain down abundance, a profusion of fowl, myriad fishes. He will bring to you a harvest of wealth, in the morning, he will let loaves of bread shower down, and in the evening, a rain of wheat. So basically, this god tells Gilgamesh to go to his people, and if they will build this ark, they will have all these riches and treasures rain down on them. So, I mean, it's it's well, completely this, different. This isn't Gilgamesh, right? This is Utnapishtim. Yeah, Utnapishtim. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Would, would, would you like to tell the story? <laughs> I just want to keep it straight, right? He went to Utnapishtim to find out the secret of immortality, and now Utnapishtim is telling this story about what happened, right? Yeah. Um, there's this uh, battle between the gods. They want to destroy humanity, but I guess Ea is the one who doesn't want humanity to be destroyed? Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, he, he's the one that uh, starts speaking to walls and things like that and uh, describing to Utnapishtim. Hey, I think I said it right. Hey, good but- job. <laughs> Uh, don't ask me to do it again. But that's when that's when uh, he instructs him, and this is how this begins. Now, you have Noah's story, where he loads everything on, and this is Utnapishtim's. 
Whatever I had, I loaded on it. Whatever silver I had, I loaded on it. Whatever gold I had, I loaded on it. All the living beings that I had, I loaded on it. I had all my kith and kin go up into the boat. All the beasts and animals of the field and the craftsmen I had go up. So, so basically... He's smarter than Noah. He's preparing himself for surviving the flood. Noah exactly. just put the animals on there, nothing else. Exactly. I mean... All Noah did was put his family, his family's wives up there. And, I mean, his entire family was the ones that built the boat. Whereas Itnapishtim actually went around and gathered up all the worksmen, workmen around him and had them build the boat and then ushered them on. So he was bringing an entire civilization where Noah was trying to repopulate the world by having his sons procreate with his daughters, I'm sure. Right. Now, it's actually very interesting because now we're starting to get into the similarities. Now... This is kind of a vague similarity, but it's still a similarity. And I'm going to read uh, Gilgamesh's version first. When the seventh day arrived, the storm was pounding. The flood was a war, struggling with itself like a woman writhing in labor. The sea calmed, fell still. The whirlwind and flood stopped up. Now, this is why I like Gilgamesh. I mean, where else do you get a description of a woman writhing in labor? <laughs> that, is a, that is a great description. Uh, but anyway, it just says the firmament opened up, right? And there's lots and lots of rain. That I really yeah. like that description. It gives you a sense of um, the anguish of the going nuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, this is coming from the Bible, Genesis eight verse four. Rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Now that comes important a little bit later on, but I love the similarity where you have in Gilgamesh's story, they're dealing with sevens, the seventh day, and then in the Moses story, you're dealing with the same thing. All right, so now, interestingly enough, I just read uh, the Genesis version, uh, chapter 4, and on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ariat. So basically, the ark rested on this mountain called Ararat. Now, this is coming from Gilgamesh. I looked around for coastlines in the expanse of the sea, and at the 12 leagues... There emerged a region of land. On Mount Nimish, the boat lodged firm. And then he goes on to say that the boat was lodged there for some time. So it's the exact same thing that Noah did on his. They got caught on a mountain and they stopped there. Yeah, so all these people who are looking for the Ark in Ararat would probably be better to look for it at Mount Nimish. That makes sense to me. Uh, now, if you could just point out Mount Nimish on a on a map, I'd be very content. I can't help you. Uh, <laughs> Ararat's in Turkey, right? All right. So, it, I mean, it, it's, it just gets even more and more fascinating. So, from here. so, so far, you've got two guys who are selected by the gods. They uh, build a boat. They stock it all up with a bunch of stuff, take off. There's a massive flood, and they land uh, in a, a mountain. That's, yep, that's they pretty, land on a mountain. That's pretty similar so far. Yeah, not only do they land on a mountain, but they sit there for a long time waiting for the uh, the seas and the water to separate. Now, this is where the similarities really start going nuts. Did Gilgamesh see a dove? Wasn't it like a, a bird or something? That, that, uh... Actually, exactly what I'm getting to. Not do He doesn't see a dove. He releases a dove. Oh. Surprise, surprise, so does Noah. Now, hold on. I'm going to read you both of them. Now, this is coming from Gilgamesh. When a seventh day arrived, I sent forth a dove and released it. The dove went off, but came back to me. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a swallow and released it. The swallow went off, but came back to me. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a raven and released it. The raven went off and saw the water slither black, 
It eats, it scratches, it hobs, or it bobs, but does not circle back to me. So basically, we have Gilgamesh releasing a dove, a swallow, and a raven. The, the dove comes back to him, the swallow comes back to him, but the raven stays away. So keep those in your mind. Now I'm going to read directly out of Genesis again. We're going to go verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. And it came to pass the end of the forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up and up from off the earth. So basically we have the same thing. <laughs> Noah sends forth a raven, but it doesn't come back. Now, also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth, and he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. So basically we have the exact same thing happening as Gilgamesh. Noah sends forth a dove, it circles around and comes back to him. And uh, how is it you can miss the similarities? Someone's borrowing from someone else here, definitely. Obviously. I mean, everybody knows at that point Noah waits seven more days. Again, the number seven pops up. And then he releases the dove. The dove comes back with, uh, with a little twig, and everybody's happy. Of course, what I'd like to know is, how is it these trees lived underneath all this water? It, I mean, obviously, <laughs> the dove brings back a twig, so something was growing, but wouldn't it take time to replenish the earth of plants? Not if you're God. Ah, see, I always forget the God factor. <laughs> All right, well, well, continuing on, there, I'm going to read from Noah because I love, I love this right here. And this is Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And Noah builded an altar. I love the English on that, builded. <laughs> builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean flower, or fowl and offered the burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. I love now, how the he sounds regretful there, right? As if yeah. he wasn't aware that his actions would um, result in this, or... He was so angry before that now he's kind of finally calmed down. You know, this is not an all-powerful, all-knowing God that's depicted here. This is a God oh. who gets angry and, and uh, kind of has regrets. It's as if he's on a learning curve because, I mean, yeah. he even states, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So it's like he's just discovering this. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, I guess I can't really blame them even though I wiped them all out. <laughs> Because I yeah. created them, you know, kind of evil to begin with. So I guess I won't do that again. Yeah. Now, the reason why I wanted to read Noah first, because Noah, as the story goes, he piled on all the animals two by two so they could replenish the earth. Then he lets all the animals go onto the land, and then he starts killing them and sacrificing them to God. So, uh... Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we need both of those. <laughs> Oops. Well, we'll just kill one. Well, I guess uh, Noah had to repopulate the earth with the deer. <laughs> That's what happened to the unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> no, God smelled their sweet savor. 
Ah, I know I have to sacrifice, but didn't God want me to save these animals? Oh, that's a good point. I never thought about that. Uh, I, I read that. I mean, that, that was something that struck me when I was a child, but I read it again last night when I was preparing for this podcast, and I couldn't stop laughing. That's so, fantastic. Well, anyway, so now I'm going to read something that comes directly out of uh, Gilgamesh's uh, attempt. Seven and seven cult vessels I put in place, and into the fire underneath, or into their bowels, I poured reed, cedar, and myrtle. The gods smelled the savor, the gods smelled the sweet savor. Now, does that sound very similar to verse 21 of Genesis that says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor? Not only is it very similar, but that is the only place in the Bible that you will find those words. Nowhere else. Yeah. Uh, Not only that, but then a little bit later on you have, uh, again, Utnipship, I've lost the translation. (laughs) (laughs) He states, You gods... As surely as I shall not forget this lapis lazuli around my neck, may I be mindful of these days and never forget them. So, I mean, basically, he's demanding of the gods that they never forget it. And so, I mean, you've you've got just, again, another exact similarity where this is concerned. Yeah, and what's funny is, um, not only similarities again, but like the Enuma Elish, the differences, right? Uh, you can yeah. see that, this appears to be an epic that was taken by the Hebrews and modified. You, you could see why Utnapishtim was, was just kind of selected. He wasn't um, a great hero or anything like that. He was just kind of picked. You can see why you move from that to the Noah figure who is righteous before the Lord, and that's the reason he was picked. But you can't see yeah. why would you drop that he was a really good person and go the other way. Yeah. Oh, we'll just let that go. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just it's just very fascinating to see the similarities between these, and it makes you wonder why nobody else is noticing these similarities, or if they are hearing them, say, my mother, who I described this to, and just blatantly closing their eyes and saying, you know what, God created the rainbow. Yeah, you got the blinders on for that. Um, you just flat out ignore it. Um, if it doesn't fit in with your preconceived beliefs, well, you know your preconceived beliefs are true, therefore, what this guy's telling me must be false. He may be right in certain details, but there's something wrong about what he's telling me because it doesn't jive with what I already know. Yeah, obviously, even though this story was in, oh, 2500 BCE, the uh, they stole it from the Jews. Right. Well, you know that no matter how old it was, Adam's older than that because Adam was the first man. So clearly, uh, that preceded any other culture, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, or, or otherwise. Of course. That because makes those cultures sense. only came at the Tower of Babel, <laughs> right? That's when the <laughs> languages were were uh, dispersed and, and changed. And, and so that, that's when all the different, you know, the people figured out, oh, hey, you speak the same language as me. Let's go um, settle in Egypt and become Egyptians. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, after your languages are confounded, you have to find like uh, like speaking people so you can understand each other. Absolutely, and you, f- you forget about you know the the Hebrew God that you had been taught and, and come up with uh, tons and tons and tons and tons of gods to explain it. I mean, that that, makes, that all makes sense. Yeah, I can see it happening. <laughs> so uh, fascinating. Clearly, again, Gilgamesh both preceded and strongly influenced, if not. 
uh, was I mean, it seems like both of these stories were used as templates for these uh, Hebrew uh, compilers, or I guess you'd call them redactors, that they'd go in there and they'd choose um, certain things and they'd change stuff that they didn't like, or they'd, they'd mesh it and twist it and shape it to fit their own theology. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what you're discovering here. And like I said, you know, it's not as if we we've haven't touched on biblical literalism before, but again, you can't really, when you know all this stuff, you cannot accept that very naive, simple-minded view that what the Bible says is true, and therefore I, I believe it and forget everything else. Because not even the Bible presents itself that way. No, it doesn't. And I think that's why a lot of people are pushing towards taking the Bible less literal and taking it just as teachings. I am all for that particular movement. Uh, yeah. If that's a foot and, it, and it's moving, it may, it may well um, be at the root of uh, all of this kind of push toward uh, being less religious. Because once you give up the fact that every word of the Bible is the inerrant truth of God, that is a huge step. I agree with you, and uh, I believe that's a good point to close on. All right, we'll see you guys next week.